0: Welcome to the latest episode of Energy and Utilities Market Talk. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Frank Wouters, Vice President of Business Development for Clean Hydrogen at Worley. Hydrogen, it's sort of become the buzzword, I was going to say this year. Last year, I think we noticed it becoming a lot more prominent in agendas for energy conferences and then the host of webinars and online digital events we had last year about the energy transition. There's been a number of announcements and contracts signed in the Middle East for the development of hydrogen in the coming years. So to start, it'd be great just to get as an introduction from you, how is the production of green hydrogen different from traditional forms of hydrogen production?
1: Yeah, thanks. That's that's a good question, because traditionally, and already now, production of hydrogen is quite a big industry. Uh, About 70 million tons of hydrogen are being produced, predominantly from natural gas in uh, what we call steam methane reformer. So you take natural gas and you separate that into its components, and you end up with hydrogen, H2, but also fairly large amounts of uh, CO2. And I think this is uh, something to consider going forward because we have about 10 times the amount of CO2 compared to the amount of hydrogen, which is the main purpose of these SMR units. In China, by the way, a lot of the hydrogen is produced using coal as an input, and that's equally uh, or even worse polluting. Now, the exciting new development that we've seen uh, emerge in the last uh, couple of years, again, is using electricity. And the technology that we then apply is electrolysis. So you, you take an electrolyzer... You feed water and green electricity, and the end result is that we split. We separate water, which is H2O, into its two components, hydrogen and oxygen. And if the electricity is green, there is no carbon in the entire process, and the um, the resulting hydrogen is green. Now, why hasn't that happened before? It actually has happened before. About 100 years ago, this was the predominant uh, production technology for hydrogen because we had large hydropower plants. In places like Norway, but also Zimbabwe and Egypt, where large electrolyzers were being built, but then the natural gas story came up and it basically pushed that traditional electrolysis out of the market. It has come back now because green electricity is cheap, and this is the main difference that you know we've seen in the last couple of years between the hydrogen enthusiasm that we are seeing in the last couple of years versus, you know, if you will, the hype maybe fifteen years ago when there was also an emergence of all kinds of hydrogen uh stories and fuel cells but then renewable electricity was expensive right now it's cheap so there is a business proposition
0: that's interesting i didn't realize the history went as far back as that much of the technology that's being used in the actual electrolysis process did exist already didn't it however there's quite a lot of work going on now across the world to try and reduce the cost of the electrolysis process. When do you think that we'll start to see it become cost efficient?
1: Yeah, that's another very good question. You know, what what we've seen is, first of all, a massive decline in the cost of electricity, which is you know about two thirds of the cost of the hydrogen. So if you look at what you need, you need an electrolyzer and you need green electricity, two thirds of the resulting cost of hydrogen produced in that process, is the price of electricity so and That is still going down in many places, In actually most places, it's now the cheapest form of electricity. And, and we're still managing to reduce the cost of that. So that's an important driver. But the other chunk of the cost is the cost of the electrolyzer. And they were just at the beginning, even though the technology itself is perhaps a hundred years old at industrial scale, we're not making electrolyzers for water electrolysis to the extent that the market will demand it in the future. So again, there we will see, like with renewables, we'll see increasing capacities with increasing efficiency of the electrolyzer with larger scale. We will see a similar cost curve, a learning curve, some some people call it. By just producing it more and more, you can get the cost down. And that's what we're seeing with you know flat screens, with phones, with cars. The more you make them, the cheaper they become. We're just starting to do that for electrolyzers. Now we have applications which are in the money. You know, if you're, for example, making hydrogen and you're using that as a fuel in a car or in a truck, then you're competing with relatively expensive fuels already. So already there, if you build the infrastructure and if you're managing your cost, you can have a business case that makes sense. In the more bulky applications, for example, in ammonia production or you know, in the steel industry or industrial heating, all these applications where hydrogen could play a role in replacing natural gas or other fossil fuels, we still need a bit of time to get to a commercial proposition. But what we have seen in the past is that these developments are actually going very fast. And a recent report last year actually analyzed some of these sectors and competitive nature of green and blue hydrogen going forward. And the conclusion was that within the next 10 years, you know, a large part of these applications are actually in the money for clean hydrogen so it's just a matter of you know getting there you know getting to scale you know building those factories getting projects on the ground making those investments you know f- for that cost curve to come into play and uh, you know and and become competitive and and the reality is that at the moment it does need some support you know the markets alone wouldn't be able to do that because of the cost difference but in the next 10 years that's going to dramatically change
0: yes the parallel with renewables, it's quite a an easy one to make. So the cost of PV solar production has fallen by, I think, 80% over the last decades globally. And I know from being in the Middle East for more than a decade now, we've seen the price of renewable energy projects being set here, setting world records and playing a key role in driving down the cost of utility-scale renewable energy project. I remember in 2015, when the the first sort of large-scale solar project in Dubai, 5.85 cents a kilowatt hour was announced. A lot of people were saying, oh, that's not sustainable. How can we have a market with that? And now the cost has fallen below two cents in five or six years. So I think it will fall quicker, probably more quickly than people are even anticipating now. So it's definitely an exciting market for the future. You touched on a few there, Frank, already. When we talk about, Green hydrogen. What are the main uses of green hydrogen? So you, you've touched on transport and industrial. If you could just give us a bit of a of an idea of what we expect to see green hydrogen used, and particularly in the Middle East region.
1: If you take a step back and look at energy overall, then we get very excited about green electricity because it's something that we've managed to do. We've been able to decarbonize the electricity sector by making renewable generation most competitive. But the reality is that electricity is only 20% of all final energy and 80% of the energy we consume are still hydrocarbons. There is a small portion of biomass in there, but 80% it's still diesel, it's coal, it's natural gas, all of the hydrocarbons that we use to run industrial processes make high temperature heat you know long range transport all of those things that that we take for granted so what we need to do is two things first increase the share of electricity in the energy system right now it's 20% roughly that we can go we can go up to 50 easily by electrifying more processes replacing for example compressors that run on natural gas, make them electric, there's many, many examples of of things. Transport, you know, electric uh, uh, mobility is is a big one in, in that equation. But then we still have to tackle the other half, because there is a certain limit where electricity just doesn't make most sense. I mean, you can do a lot with electricity and direct electrification is very efficient, But then you have to look at seasonal storage, long-range transport, and all of the elements where electricity is just, you know, expensive. So what can take the other half, which are at the moment molecules? And hydrogen, I think, of all the options that we have, you know, has the best cards in terms of scalability, in terms of universal application. And then you're touching on basically almost everything. I mean, you can use hydrogen. Once you have it at that scale and you use existing and new infrastructure to store and transport hydrogen over long distances, once you have it everywhere, you will be able to make steel from hydrogen and replace coking coal. You will be able to use hydrogen as a transport fuel for, you know, large scale transport for trains, for trucks, but eventually also for cars and potentially even planes. You will be using it to replace natural gas in industrial processes. And then, you know, one of the major ones is, of course, an industrial feedstock molecules, which you need, for example, ammonia, fertilizer, and all of those things, where now you use fossil fuels and input, you can use renewable hydrogen. In the Middle East, I think that is not entirely different from elsewhere in the sense that, you know, there's a lot, especially in the Gulf, where I'm based, there's a lot of heavy industry. There's, there's steel making. There's aluminium. There's you know petrochemicals, chemicals, and all of those can use hydrogen in the end as a feedstock. Of course, it needs to become cheaper. That will happen over time. We also need to consider eventually a price for carbon because without that, it becomes challenging. But it will happen. And one of the things that you already mentioned it sets this region apart is it's you know they don't only have very low cost hydrocarbons, but also the lowest cost renewable electricity. So it's an ideal place to actually do these things. You know, you can make very cheap green hydrogen and green ammonia and blue ammonia. Uh, So this is actually a great place to start some of these things.
0: Sure. And there is also the incentive there, not just the benefits of green hydrogen per se, but the governments are starting to look at their futures in terms of diversifying their economies we saw Shell last week saying that it thinks it's past peak oil production already. I remember people were talking about the 2030s being peak oil, and now we're talking that might have already happened. So it's not just about the benefits of using it in processes. It can offer an alternative sector for countries in the region that have economies that have been based on hydrocarbon production. It offers them something new. You mentioned ammonia there, Frank. Obviously, one of the most interesting announcement last year on green hydrogen in the region and one of the most interesting globally was in saudi arabia the announcement there's going to be a green hydrogen ammonia project in neom i think five billion dollars so that's saudi arabia is the world's largest oil exporter that just shows that green hydrogen can offer something for the future
1: yeah absolutely and i, I think taking advantage of a number of factors that come together first this project is based in Neom, a large new city state in the northwestern corner of Saudi Arabia, which it's actually the size of Belgium. So it's more, more a country than a city. But they want the entire city to be carbon free. And they have all the prerequisites to make that work. They have fantastic solar irradiation, but also wind. And I think this is, this is something that sets them apart. So they have thermal winds that pick up every afternoon over the Red Sea The moment the sun starts going down, the wind starts picking up. And that combination is unique. There's not many places in the world where you have that. So, a combination of solar and wind provides very high load factors. More than 70% runtime is guaranteed at very low cost for the electrolyzer. And then the question is okay, so you, you can make competitively green hydrogen, but what do you do with the hydrogen? There's a number of pathways to take that to customers. Uh, you can liquefy it to minus 253 degrees celsius which uh, is being piloted now between australia and japan that's an option you can attach it to a hydrocarbon in the form of a liquid uh, organic hydrogen carrier that is being piloted in europe and in asia or you can make ammonia and ammonia is a combination of hydrogen and nitrogen so you add next to the electrolyzer an air separation unit, because air consists of 82% nitrogen. And then you combine the two in the Haber-Bosch process to make ammonia NH3. Now, ammonia is liquid at minus 33 degrees Celsius, you know, compared to minus 253 degrees for hydrogen. It's a lot cheaper and easier to do. And and ammonia is already a globally traded commodity. So, Neon plus, you know, aqua power and, and air products to invest in a green ammonia plant at a massive scale, you mentioned $5 billion, and then they take the ammonia to customers elsewhere. There are various things that you can actually do with ammonia. First of all, it's a feedstock in its own right. It's something you can make fertilizers with, which is uh, you know the main application right now, but also explosives. But you can also burn it you know, as a fuel. Japan is looking into burning ammonia in coal-fired power plants to decarbonize that part of the electricity sector, but also various marine engine manufacturers, uh, including Wärtsilä and MAN, have developed ammonia marine engines for the shipping industry. So you can transport ammonia in a ship, but you can also run the ship on that. That's a very exciting um, application for the future. And lastly, and uh, certainly not least, you can crack ammonia back into its components. So you make ammonia, you take it to clients in a very cost-efficient way all over the world where you need it, and then you crack it back into hydrogen and nitrogen if you need hydrogen. And the bulk of the applications are actually going to be going for pure hydrogen. So cracking back ammonia is also something that's going to happen.
0: Sure. A lot of interesting opportunities in the hydrogen space. And something else that we're starting to hear about now is blue hydrogen. So in the race to reduce carbon emissions, we've discussed green hydrogen, how renewables is involved in that process. Could you just tell us a little bit about blue hydrogen, Frank?
1: Sure. So blue hydrogen, I mean, the issue with these colors is that become a little bit commonplace, but there's also quite a bit of confusion. But you know, the common understanding is that blue hydrogen is derived from hydrogen made from fossil fuels in the traditional way. Typically, that would be made from natural gas in a steam methane reforming unit or in an orthothermal reforming unit. And then you capture the CO2. As I said before, you have a lot of CO2 production associated with the hydrogen production. You capture that and then you store it or you use it. And the resulting hydrogen is a lot cleaner than, you know, unabated hydrogen and that's what we call blue now obviously if you're in the middle east and you're a producer of hydrocarbons you have you know still a lot of natural gas and oil going forward that is one of the options that people are looking at and we've seen indeed announcements by aramco actually initial projects already by Aramco and saudi arabia but also Adnoc in abu dhabi is now exploring how to do that and you know this is one of the options to decarbonize the hydrogen industry, but also to get going quicker. Part of the issue with hydrogen is that, you know, green is still at very early stages. If you're, for example, looking at Europe, you know, one of the big advantages of hydrogen in the energy transition is that you can use existing infrastructure. So, Europe has two hundred thousand kilometers of uh, high pressure gas pipes, and you know, the Netherlands, Germany, but also other countries in Europe are building, developing hydrogen backbones. Now, these pipes are massive. That is not something you can do gradually. You have to have a certain volume of hydrogen, you know, to make that work. Also, storage of hydrogen over seasons, that's something that requires a lot of hydrogen. So that is some of the thinking behind, okay, we have to massively ramp up green. But in the meantime, we also need blue just to get the industry going. And that's the story and the thinking behind green and blue.
0: Thank you. Frank, a lot of opportunities there. It's interesting, carbon capture. I remember a few years ago, there was a lot of talk about carbon capture for thermal power plants. And that didn't really come to fruition in the end because they couldn't get the costs quite right. But in terms of blue hydrogen, I mean, the the incentive's definitely there. All of the resources available and hydrocarbon companies out here that have, I'm sure, the money and investment to invest in, in developing blue hydrogen. So we've discussed green hydrogen and the role it can play in transport and, and industries. Obviously, renewable energy at the moment predominantly is still a peak power, an intermittent resource. So you have energy when the sun's out or when it's windy. It's an opportunity for green hydrogen to store the energy and enable it to be used off-peak?
1: That's not just an opportunity. I think it's going to be a necessity going forward. I mean, again, bigger picture if you're looking at What part of the system is electricity? What part is molecules? If we're going towards a system, you know, for the sake of argument, let's look again at Europe. In the future, you may have a system with 50% green electricity, and then the other 50% would be largely green hydrogen or clean hydrogen. Then you have to realize the fact that, as you say, you know, the bulk of the electricity production, which is, by the way, not just electricity, electricity, but also electricity to make the hydrogen will be in the summer months when you have the highest solar radiation over the year. Whereas demand for gas, whether it's natural gas right now or hydrogen in the future, will peak in the winter because we use a lot of gas for heating. So you have that disconnect. So you need storage. And storing electricity, you know, an electron by nature, you cannot store. It has to flow. You know, what you always have to do is convert it. So a battery is an electrochemical uh, conversion device. The way you store electricity bulk right now is in pumped hydro. Again, looking at Europe, I think the potential for additional pumped hydro in Europe is just limited. We do it in Norway and the Alps, but most of those opportunities um, have been done. So that cannot be expanded indefinitely. But storing a gas is very, very straightforward. So storing hydrogen over seasons is something that you can easily do. And, And the way to do that would be Primarily in salt caverns, and Europe has plenty of those, both onshore as well as offshore. And that is proven technology. There is already hydrogen storage in salt caverns in several places in the world that we know how that works. We know how contamination can be managed and all of those aspects. And if you're looking at the gas storage on the bigger picture in Europe, already Europe now has several months of gas supply store and that's the volume you have to think about when you're thinking through a system in the future So storage absolutely crucial and you know very very cost efficient to be done with hydrogen and very difficult with electricity so that's one of the elements so this whole sector coupling and you know storage element absolutely crucial in the hydrogen story
0: and in a region like the middle east and north africa which has abundant resources of sun and lots of land as well. There'd be a real opportunity there to develop green hydrogen, store it, and then transport it to other areas in Europe, I guess, where there's less space.
1: Yeah, I think that's good thinking. If I look, for example, um, you know, at the geology of, of Oman, you know, they have salt caverns, and they have fantastic solar resource. The ability to make hydrogen based on solar. Now, the issue with solar is you have maybe two thousand hours a year. Whereas even if you're trying to make ammonia or if you try to export or feed a gas into an industrial system, you need a constant supply. So storage is absolutely crucial. So the combination of very low cost solar energy with electrolysis and large scale storage in Oman is something that could definitely be uh, explored. But there's other places in North Africa that have similar conditions where you use the storage you know, to get more baseload supply into the system.
0: And to wrap up, Frank, we've heard a lot today about the uses of green hydrogen and and blue hydrogen and the the benefits, as you've mentioned, still in a very early stage. Moving forward, we've seen agreements signed, some very ambitious targets around green hydrogen. What are the key challenges facing these green hydrogen plans and programmes reaching fruition?
1: Yeah, there's obviously a few. So what we've seen last year was a large number of countries and regions issuing hydrogen strategies and publishing them. And, you know, most notably the European Union released their hydrogen strategy on the 8th of July. And that is very, very rich in ambition. But the reality is that it's relatively poor in policy detail because, as I said before, we're not in the money Per se yet or very few applications. So you know the business needs policy support. And the detail on that policy support is currently being debated, it's currently being elaborated, but it's not there yet. So I think policy details absolutely crucial, and that is a mixture of carrots and sticks. I mean, you can do subsidies, but you can also apply quotas, and then you have to face the issue, okay, if we for example, uh, you know, have a high carbon price in Europe, which would be one of the drivers to switch from you know carbon-heavy fuels to low-carbon fuels. You know, how do we protect ourselves from carbon leakage, which is imported products that have a very high carbon content? So all of that is is complicated, and and that needs uh, that that needs to be elaborated. The other thing is that it does imply massive investments across the board. You know, from you and me making the decision to buy a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle rather than an electric vehicle, or and there is an investment, there is an investment decision up to massive scales in the steel industry where, you know, you have maybe an investment cycle of 30, 40 years and you have to hit that right. I mean, for a steel manufacturer to switch to hydrogen, that's a huge decision. So, are we sure that there is a business case? Are we sure that I, I get the supply of massive amounts of hydrogen that are currently not there yet? So, how all of that is going to happen, I think that's a challenge. It's inevitable. I, I don't see another way. We're, we're serious about climate change. We have to decarbonize our energy system, but it's a massive, massive, massive transformation of, of almost everything we do.
0: Thank you, Frank. That's certainly been very interesting for me today. Been a great insight into the prospects for green hydrogen, the opportunities moving forwards. We've had a look at the the technologies for green and blue hydrogen, potential in the Middle East. And also, salient point to finish on then, that we need regulation and the, and the policies are an important part as well. Getting the technology costs down will only take you so far to develop a global market that will play a key role in meeting net zero targets policies and regulation is important as well. So many thanks, Frank Wouters from Worley. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you in the future and also very interested to see what Worley is doing in terms of hydrogen development as well. So thank you, Frank. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the latest episode of Energy and Utilities Market Talk and we'll welcome you back soon. Thank you very much.